0: I want to preach on the subject of surgery for the soul this morning. Over the past several weeks, our pastor has been teaching us how to engage in and win our spiritual battles in spiritual warfare, and we are becoming thoroughly equipped to overcome every temptation that we will ever face in this life, and we can have victory over the darkness However, I want to to touch on a kind of a problem that that we have within the church today when it comes to spiritual warfare. There's a common misconception that every person that darkens the doorway of a church is a born-again believer, follower of Jesus Christ. Sadly, I believe that the gospel has been watered down so much in America that we tend to think if we go to church, we do our daily readings, if we do this or that, that we're living a right life with God. And I believe that that's no gospel at all. And thankfully, here in this church, we don't have that problem. We have a pastor who preaches the gospel. And we have that that awesome understanding, knowing that we're being taught the truth. Those of you that may be watching on Facebook, you may be thinking, well, I don't know that I hear the truth every week. Well, thankfully, Pastor Greg does preach the gospel, and we have that gracious gift from God to have him as our shepherd here in this church. But my fear is that there are many people who have believed in Jesus without actually surrendering their lives to him. When it pertains to the kingdom of God, these two things are inseparable. We must believe and we must surrender. You can't have heaven without sacrifice. Jesus paid for our atonement on the cross. Through his resurrection, we can have eternal life. Paul tells us that if we believe in our hearts that Jesus that God raised Jesus from the dead, then we'll be saved. That sounds great. It sounds really awesome, right? If we believe, we'll be saved. And Jesus himself said that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting or eternal life. Amen to that, right? But the Bible makes it clear that belief alone is not actually salvation. Now before you say, Oh my, well, we can't earn our salvation. No, we don't earn it. But it doesn't stop with just believing. Because even James tells us that even the, de- the demons believe in Jesus. And they shudder because of it. Jesus says that to be his follower, you must deny yourself daily and follow him. When Paul said that the requirement for salvation was to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, he began that statement of truth with the requirement that we must confess Jesus as Lord. That seems like an easy thing to do on the surface. But what does it really mean to confess Jesus as our Lord? Why is it so important? Why is following Jesus as Lord the requirement for eternal life? What are we missing? If we ask our Muslim friends, Jesus is just a prophet. He's just a good teacher. And there are many ways to God. I was watching something yesterday, and it it was, uh, what were we watching? Big Brother. And a guy was having a conversation with one of the women. And I've never watched Big Brother until I got married to Carly. Now I watch it all the time. It's weird. It's really unusual. But anyway, this guy was talking to a girl. And they were talking about um, racial injustice. And, and, he's, and he was coming from the Muslim perspective that says, oh, they're all the same God. They just, you know, would just come to him in different ways. I believe and know that the Bible would say that's the absolute opposite of truth. They are not one and the same. They are far different. So today I want to turn our attention to King David's prayer in Psalm 51 to find the answers to these questions that we're asking. You see, I believe to find authentic salvation, we must first have a grasp on what separates us from God in the first place. There's one reason we have to deal with spiritual warfare on a daily basis. And that reason is sin. See, King David was was considered a man after God's own heart. I mean, he he was God's man. If you read about King David, he did so many great things. He was a great military leader, winning battle after battle. He sought God in almost everything he did. He loved God dearly, trusted God, and obeyed his decrees. But he wasn't perfect. He had some serious flaws. He struggled with sin. He wasn't the best father, became a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And he was responsible for a series of sinful events that led to death and disgrace for several others in his life. So if you've ever read 2 Samuel chapter 11, you can find the story of David committing adultery and murder. He was putting himself in an interesting situation. You see... David was this great military leader, but at one moment, he let weakness take over. You see, it says in 2 Samuel 11, in verse 1, it says, In the days that kings went out to war, David found himself standing up on his rooftop. So, Think about that for just a second. In the days that kings go out to war, David is standing on his rooftop. Where should David have been? Shouldn't he have been out with his his warriors fighting the battle? Of course he should have. That's what his job was. That's what he was supposed to be doing. As the king of Israel, it was his job to lead the military. But no, he he was standing on his rooftop. And while he was walking on his rooftop, he happened to be looking down. And what did he see? But a beautiful woman. Now, I don't know about you guys, but Bathsheba had to be really, really, really hot. I'm just saying. I mean, I don't know how we get distracted like that. But here's the thing. If David's walking around on his rooftop and he just happens to see Bathsheba, do you think he knew what the viewpoint looked like from up there on top of the roof? Do you think he might have seen women before? You think he might have known that this may be an issue? You see, David had had more than one wife. He had quite a few, actually. If you continue to read in 2 Samuel, it starts to tell you about his wives. And what's ironic is that his son had a thousand. So it got really bad for his family. But So David's up there, and, and he sees this Bathsheba, and she's bathing. Now, guys, I mean, if... if You want to commit a sin right now. Tell me you've never seen a naked woman and thought, wow. Okay, I didn't think so. I didn't think there would anybody that would fall prey to that. So he's up there. He sees this naked woman. And what does he say? Hey, who's that? He gets his servants. And who is that? they're like, well, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah happened to be one of David's mighty men. There's a list of 30 guys of his fighting warriors. And Uriah's in that list. So David knew Uriah quite well, and he said, that's Uriah's wife, and David says, bring her to me. Now, do you see the, how, how sin just, the, it's like a, a downhill slope. It starts real soft, you don't even know it's there, and then it just continues to grow. So David had her brought to him. He slept with her, and he thought, oh, it's all good, okay, send her away. Well, when she realizes she's pregnant, she comes, sends a message to David and says, hey, I'm pregnant, you know. And he's like, whoa. All right, tell Joab, the commander of the army, send Uriah to me. So Uriah comes off the battlefield. He comes into David's presence. David says, hey, how's it going out there? Uriah's like, it's going good. We're doing this, we're doing that. And David says, hey, why don't you go home and, you know, see your wife? And Uriah's like, Okay. So he goes, but he doesn't leave the kingdom. He doesn't leave David's palace. He stays at the gate with David's servants. He won't leave because he thinks it's dishonorable to go and be with his wife when he's supposed to be out fighting, which you'd think David would have got that picture because he's the king, but he didn't. So David finds out that Uriah never went home. He's like, oh no, I got I to gotta come up with a plan. So he brings Uriah back in, gets him drunk. He thinks, okay, now he'll go home. He'll be with his wife. And then it looks like Looks like she's pregnant from him. Well, guess what? Sleeps at, the gate, sleeps at the gate again. David's like, I'm gonna have to do it again. Tries it again, doesn't work, obviously. So then David comes up with this master plan. Tells Joab, put Uriah at the front line, and then when the fighting gets fierce, back up. And what happens? Uriah dies. News flash that's murder. He killed him, he had him killed. By the hand of his enemies, so that he could cover up his sin with Bathsheba. So, not only did he lie about it, not only was he hanging out when he should have been fighting, then he had sex with a woman that's not his wife, and it happens to be somebody else's wife, but then to cover it all up, he has her husband murdered. Now, if you're a man after God's own heart, this is pretty sick, isn't it? Don't you think? It's kind of scary. So David's kind of in a bad way now. Uriah's been killed, Bathsheba's pregnant, he's going to have a kid. There's going to be some consequences to his actions, right? Well, what do you feel like when there's something wrong with your body? What do you do? What's the first thing you do when you feel like there's something wrong with your body? Call a doctor, right? Head to the doctor. You find out what's going on. And depending on the severity of the illness or injury the doctor's going to decide what the best course of treatment is, right? Sometimes medicine can take care of the issue, and you'll be good to go. But other times, physical therapy may be the answer, depending on what you've got going on. But in the worst-case scenario, what happens? We have to have surgery. We need a surgeon to come in, cut us open, and repair or replace whatever's giving us a problem. Now, just a week ago I had a, had the privilege of being with my daughter who sadly had a foot surgery. If anybody's seen it on Facebook or Instagram, she's been posting like crazy of her awesome experience with foot surgery. And I got to tell you, it's it's something that's been lifelong. She was in a car accident when she was just before she turned 4 years old and Uh, she broke both the bones in her lower leg, and the tibia grew crooked. Well, we didn't really know that it grew crooked until she was in high school, and when she was in high school, she was having chronic pain with her foot, and the doctor at the time put her in a boot and did what he could do, but it didn't really solve the problem of the crooked bone, so he told her, look, this is what we got to do. I'm going to cut your bone in half, and I'm going to put a cadaver bone in between. We're going to fuse them together. I'm going to bring you back in a month later, and I'm going to put your foot back where it belongs. She was messed up. Her foot is a mess, but thank God she's healing. The surgery went well. Hopefully the bones fuse together, and she gets her foot put back where it belongs, but I say that to say there was an issue. She went to a doctor. The doctor gave her a solution. He performed surgery. We have healing, But sometimes when you get told you need to have surgery, how do you react? Anybody ever had like like a something removed, gallbladder, tonsils, uh, anything? You're like, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to go under the knife, right? You get a little scared. A little fear comes in. I understand that. Um, I had a surgery once, but we're not going to go there. It wasn't really a necessary surgery. Moving on. Um, so... The point is, you don't really know if you want to do it or not. So guess what? That's where family and friends come in. You're close, the people that are closest to you. And sometimes you need someone to say, this has to happen. You need to make make this change. You need to have this surgery. You need to take out whatever's wrong or correct whatever's wrong so that you can live the life you're supposed to live, so you can be healthy. No one wants to walk around with chronic pain. I mean, when's the last time you had a headache and, and just wanted to keep hanging out with that headache all day long? I don't think that's ever happened to anybody. So those friends and family members, close people, they can help you deal with the negative feelings that come with having surgery. King David desperately needed surgery for his soul. As you saw the downward slope from simply being up where he shouldn't have been to taking somebody he shouldn't have taken to killing somebody that didn't deserve it to trying to cover it all up, he was a mess. And in the psalm that we're going to look at in today's text, David is responding to a rebuke that he received from the prophet Nathan. Nathan comes to David and he says, look, I'm going to tell you a story. And he tells him the story. He says, there was this guy who had a little ewe lamb, who he treated like his own little pet, but not just a pet, but almost like a son or a daughter. He carried this ewe lamb around. He slept with this ewe lamb next to him. He loved this little lamb, and he was a poor man, and this is the only lamb that he had. King David's got all kinds of lambs laying around. He's the king. I mean, the king has it all. Everything was at his disposal. Nathan says to David, he says, but then there was this, this ruler, and he had things, and he had a friend come, and he didn't want to use any of his own stuff, so he took the ewe lamb from the poor guy. And he said, uh, kill that ewe lamb, we'll, we'll, we'll feast on it. And he leaves the, the, you know, the poor guy just without his ewe lamb. Imagine how that guy felt. Lots of pain, lots of suffering over that ewe lamb being slaughtered for nothing. King David David says, Well, cursed be that man. He should die and pay four times over. You know what Nathan said? You are the man. And you know what? David paid four times over for exactly that thing. Okay? And we're going to read how David reacts to Nathan's rebuke. You see... Not only did the child that Bathsheba was to have with David, that child died. That was the first one. Then one of his sons raped one of his daughters. Then that son got killed by his other son, who ultimately died because of the result of him killing his brother. So four times over, David paid just like what the prophet Nathan said to him. But David, remember, is a man after God's own heart. So, if we're going to have surgery for our souls, guess what? Can you perform surgery on yourself? No, you can't perform surgery on yourself. You need a doctor. And thankfully, Jesus is the great physician. He's the answer. That being said, number one, the first thing you need to know, the first step to having surgery for your soul is you need to recognize your depravity. As we look at Psalm 51, I want you to notice there's three sections of Psalm 51. The first section, verses 1 through 6, David is going to explain to us how he was sinful from birth. How he's had this problem, this depravity, this separation from God. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he's had this since before he was born. So I want, to, I want to take the text and I want to break it apart into three sections so we can understand what the text is telling us. So let me read verses 1 through 6 and follow along with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. We are utterly helpless to overcome sin on our own. We are completely separated from God because of our sin nature. God is a holy God, and we are not. King David clearly understood that he was a sinner. He understood the different aspects of human sinfulness. The Bible, in verses 1 and 2, uses three separate words to describe to us three distinct, separate meanings to human sinfulness. And I think and believe that we, here in the church today and abroad, have a very poor understanding of these different aspects of human sinfulness. So today I want to take a look for just a short time at these three words and give us a clearer understanding of what sin really is. So, the first word I want to look at today to discuss is the most common term that you hear in today's society, and that term is sin. The Hebrew root word for sin, are we ready to learn some Hebrew? I learned this from a a guy studying this, and I'm having fun with it, so you guys can say it with me. So, the Hebrew root word for sin is kata. You say kata. Kata. It's kind of... If you look at it in different ways, some people will say hata, but kata. That word simply means missing the mark. Have you ever, anybody like to shoot bow and arrow in here? Okay, a couple people. Um, If you hit the target in the dead center, that's perfect, right? But if you miss the dead center, what is it? It's sin. That's what it's referred to. So it's missing the mark. God has standards. He gave us... Through the Israelites, he gave us the law of Moses, right? We can look in Exodus chapter 20 and we can look at the Ten Commandments. Whenever we fail to obey any of these commandments, we fail to follow God's holy standard. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you fail to honor your mother and father, you've missed the mark. You've sinned. If you tell a lie or, or hate another person in your heart, if you covet something that belongs to your neighbor, if you misuse God's name, guess what? You've missed the mark. You have sinned. Now, these are self, pretty self-explanatory. We, we understand these things. However, there's another way that we can miss the mark, and James tells us about it. James tells us that if we know the good that we ought to do, And we don't do it, we've sinned. Now, I have to admit that I missed the mark in a lot of ways. A lot of ways. I believe that I tend to sin by failing to do the good that I ought to do. I believe that I'm pretty good at shepherding people, those that are around me, my family, my wife, my kids. I'm quick to help people that are in need. And I'm comforting to the brokenhearted. And if any of you know me at all, you know that I love to share the gospel. I mean, it's painted on me how much I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. It's all over my car. You know, if you've seen me drive anywhere, you know, I love to share the gospel. I love spiritual truth. And I, I get fired up about sharing the gospel, but I have to confess that where I fail is that I fail to pray for those that I promise to pray for on a regular basis. Now, if you ask me to pray for you, there's a good chance I'm going to do it right then and there, because if I don't do it right then and there, I'm not going to do it at all, and that's where I fail. That's where I miss the mark. Really struggle with the follow-up prayers. You know, people, you can pray, and that's great, but if you consistently pray, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. It shows God how much you care. It really does. I'm I'm guilty of just getting busy, you know? You guys ever just get busy and just, you know, kind of bypass what it is you wanted to do? I mean, I can't tell you. I've been trying to build two rooms in the basement, and there's just so many other things I could be doing than working on those bedrooms, right? Look at the two kids that I'm building in the bedroom, bedrooms are here, and they're just looking at me like, yeah, get down there right now. So I am kata. I have missed the mark. I have sinned. And that's what happened with David. He missed the mark when he stayed home. He missed the mark when he looked down on Bathsheba. He missed the mark when he brought her to him. He should have been on the battlefield with his troops. Then, I told you about him, his son raping his daughter. Guess what he did when that happened? He just turned his back. He didn't do anything about it. Nothing. He just let it go. He said, don't worry about it. Keep quiet. If someone hurts you, if someone hurts one of your children, are you going to be quiet? No. You're going to get up and do something about it, right? Well, why is it that when we see a brother and sister or sister fall into sin, we just let them lie in the mud and not pick them up? Why are we guilty of that? You know why? Because we're too selfish. We're too consumed with what we want. We forget why we're even called to be a Christian in the first place. Jesus said he came to seek and to save those that are lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to those that need a doctor, not the righteous. We need to be that for our friends, those that are around us. just stayed quiet. He knew what was right and he chose to avoid it. Let me say that again. He knew what was right and he chose to avoid it. He sinned by missing the mark. Let's look at the second aspect of human sinfulness. That second aspect that the Bible describes is called transgression. The Hebrew root word for transgression is pasha, Say that with me. Pasha. Man, I'm not really good with the whole H sound popping out. i got to work on that. Pasha. This is not a common word in today's language. How many of you guys, when somebody does something wrong to you, you walk up to them and say, hey, you're transgressing transgressing against me? Nobody's ever said that in this room. If you had, uh, you're lying, and you never did. No, you're saying you're ticking me off. Stop it. It's not cool. Quit doing what you're doing. Nobody ever says transgression. It's not a common word. But it is the easiest one for us to understand. Transgression is simply defined willful disobedience. Pasha, Thanks, Jimmy. I heard that. We're professionals at this type of sin. I think we've all got a Ph.D. in transgression, if we're honest with ourselves. We disobey all the time. I was really good at this. My mom used to call me professor when I was a kid because I never shut up. I was always right and had to have the last word. Talk about willful disobedience. I got a couple professors in my house too. (laughs) We fail to honor our parents. We lie. We cheat. We steal. We have no problem hearing a direction and then not following it. We love to do things our own way. All right, so can I, can I share just a couple examples from our family? I might get in trouble for this, but oh well, here we go. There are certain rules for snacking in our home. And all of our children, including the two that don't even live there anymore, are guilty of taking snacks without permission. Can I get amen? That's right. It's so sad. They just come. They raid the... When we're not there, oh, goodness, it's over. Don't have snacks in the pantry because if they're there, they're gone. She can go to the store and buy like a 50-pack box of fruit snacks. Now, they're just fruit snacks. They're not really that bad. But it'll be gone in like three days. Fifty of them! There's only five kids in my house, and I think only three of them eat them. Something's wrong with that. Willful disobedience. Willful disobedience. I have a certain child whose name will remain nameless, who I'll give a direction to, and this child will look at me and try to negotiate his or her way out of it. They like to make deals with me. This kid, I tell you what, I can say, hey, walk over there and pick that up. And he'll say, well, if, I, if you do this for me, I'll go over there and pick that up. What's wrong with that kid? Yeah. I do love the child more than you can ever imagine. But man, does this child drive me nuts when he tries to make a deal with me. Do I look like Monty Hall? Or for you younger folks, do I look like Wayne Brady? I'm not going to make a deal with you. Just do what I ask. Willful disobedience. But guess what? I'm not exempt. I'm not exempt from transgression. I'm not exempt from willful disobedience. God gives us a clear standard for holy living. The Bible clearly defines that which is right and that which is wrong. Jesus taught us the meaning behind the law. See, we had the law. In the first five books of the Bible, we learn about the start of creation. We learn about how God called Abraham. We learn how he loved the Israelites. But once they escape slavery, he gives them the law. And the law gives us an understanding of right and wrong. But Jesus, when he came on the scene, he broke it down in a way that people just couldn't really get their minds around. Because he, he broke down the heart of the law. We know what to do. We often choose to do the opposite of we know what to do. We choose to do the wrong anyway. Now, hear that word again. We choose To do wrong anyway. Disobedience comes naturally for all of us. David knew that sleeping with Bathsheba was wrong. But guess what? He did it anyway. He knew that having Uriah killed was absolutely wrong. He did it anyway. And he then knew that trying to cover the whole thing up was the worst of all. But he did it anyway. David transgressed against God. David was Pasha. Willful disobedience. Let's move on to the third aspect of human sinfulness. King David confesses to us his iniquity. The Hebrew root word for iniquity, and this is my favorite one, is awa. Say it, awa. Put it in the chat if you're on Facebook. Awa. It's A H A H. I know it doesn't sound like Awa, but that's the way you say it. Trust me. (laughs) Iniquity is is the the tough one to get behind, it's the tough one to understand because it is defined as being twisted out of shape. Iniquity, Awa, twisted out of shape. Has anyone here ever had a dislocated shoulder or, or or any any bone at all? Any any dislocations? One person, thanks Ben, had to go to the sports guy to to get something done. Okay, so when you have a a bone that's out of socket or and it's separating from the joints, it's twisted out of shape. What do you do if you get a bone that's dislocated? Where do you go? Where? Doctor. You go to the doctor to get it taken care of. What do you usually have to do? You might be able to put it in a sling. It might heal on its own, or guess what? you got to have surgery. Your bone is literally disconnected, twisted out of shape from where it's naturally belonging. And that's a physical twisting out of shape. It must be physically placed back to its proper position. And even before we are born into this world, we are guilty of iniquity. David makes that clear in verse 5. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David understood that you're twisted out of shape from the very beginning. Now, people like to argue, you know, what temptations you're you're born with or, or whether you acquire them later. Guess what? It doesn't matter. You're twisted out of shape from the very beginning. You are going to have a natural bent to do wrong. Transgression doesn't come just because you think, Ah, well, I'm just going to go do this. No, you do it, you're willfully disobedient because your mind, will, and emotions are twisted out of shape. The curse of sin that Adam and Eve passed down to all humanity is inescapable. Every human being is absolutely sinful at birth. Our souls, our mind, will, and emotions are twisted out of shape. We are awa. We are inclined to violate God's standard at every turn. It's as if our wires have been crossed. Now, is there anybody in here that's replaced a light switch before? A couple people. Okay. Now, if you replace the light switch, what happens if you put the wires in wrong? You blow the switch, right? If there's a light, you're gonna burn the light out. For those of you that have done it, and that happens, what happens? Well, now you might say something you shouldn't say. Now you now you transgress. Guess what? Oh man, I'm I'm. I got my wires crossed. Has anybody ever hung a ceiling fan with a light on it? This is personal. This is just, I'm going to put it out there. Okay, if you've, okay, so say you have a three-switch block, the gang box, and you put these three switches, and how many of you are OCD enough, like me, that those switches have to fit whatever mechanism you want it to fit in a certain order? Just saying, I'm that OCD, I promise. So I have a ceiling fan in my living room with lights on it. There's a three-switch box, and I hung the ceiling fan, and the first time I hung it, and I'm giving away my screw-up, there's three switches. One of the switches is for the lights, the middle switch is for the fan, and the third switch is for another light that we have over our, our dining table. So I wired this thing, and I wanted the light to be the, f- the first switch in the box. And I wanted the middle one to be the fan. I just wanted to separate the two light switches. I don't know why I'm weird like that. Guess what happened? I did it opposite. I had to go back in and fix it because my wires were crossed. So the one that I wanted to turn on the light turned on the fan. The one I wanted to turn on the fan turned on the light. My wires were crossed. That was a sad day for me. It's pretty embarrassing when you think you've got it going on and you mess it up twisted out of shape wires were crossed what happens if you you, know, you short circuit the switch now you got more work to do you ever notice that about your life you're, you're, you're going about your way you're doing your thing and then all of a sudden things are messed up and you don't know why it's because you're twisted out of shape you're awa you're full of iniquity This is the exact problem with our souls. We are so twisted out of shape that we don't know up from down, right from left. Paul tells us that he struggled with iniquity pretty hard. He knew that he was twisted out of shape. He knew what he wanted to do. But you know what? He didn't do those things. The things he didn't want to do, those are the things that he did. That's a really weird verse in in Romans 7, just so you know, but it's... It makes sense if you think about it for a second. He did the things he didn't want to do, didn't do the things he did want to do. He was twisted out of shape. Have you ever snapped at one of your kids or a coworker? Okay, that that wasn't very convincing. Okay, there you go, there you go, okay. Let's be honest, we've all done it, right? And then you realize that that thing wasn't really that significant. I can't tell you how many times I've done that to my kids because I'm, I'm like the hard parent, right? And I, sometimes I just let them have it, and I didn't really mean to. I realized that was probably way overboard, twisted out of shape. My soul's a mess. I, I really do desire to show empathy and patience in every situation. Sadly, that is not always the case, and I have witnesses. I am Awa. I am twisted out of shape. David was Awa. He knew he wasn't supposed to be on that rooftop. What what drew him to the rooftop? Was it the idea that just he's the king and he can do whatever he wants? Was it the idea that he thought it was just a great view to see the country? No. It was his own evil desires that put him on the rooftop. He forgot what was important. And you know, when we let ourselves go idle for a short time, guess what happens? We start to think things that we shouldn't think. We start to take actions that we shouldn't take we allow ourselves to recognize that we are absolutely awa, twisted out of shape. Iniquity or awa is not just the wrong that we do. It's the wrong that we are. Let me say that one more time. Iniquity or awa is not the wrong we do, it's the wrong we are. So as you can see, human sinfulness is gravely misunderstood. I spent a lot of time there for a reason. We understand that transgression or willful disobedience, we get that. We know when we choose to do wrong. Very self-explanatory. Sin or missing the mark, it's a little bit tougher. We don't like to believe that failing to act on the behalf of someone is actually sin even though the Bible emphatically states the opposite to that anyone who knows what to do that's right and good and he ought to do it or she ought to do it and if they choose not to it's sin Jesus tells us a story he elaborates on this very subject of sin or missing the mark in Matthew chapter 25 he's talking about the final judgment He's talking about how he's separating true and false believers and those who reject him just outright. He gives an example of what it looks like to meet his standards and choose otherwise. So real quick, I'm going to flip over to Matthew 25. He says these words. Verse 31. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Serving others is the best example for love. Showing love without expectation or compensation is the greatest absolute best expression of what an authentic follower of Christ looks like. King David did this very thing. His best friend, Jonathan, who he loved like a brother, King Saul's son, dies. And David becomes king and he's living his life and he says, is there anyone left from my Lord Saul's family that I can be kind to? Now that's crazy because Back then, if, if you became king, guess what you did to all the family members of the old king? Lopped their head right off. They were done. They killed him. Why? Because they were afraid they'd come after the kingdom. But no, David says, I'm t- that's not what I'm about. So he goes and he shows love and kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. You read about this in, in um, 1 Kings 9, maybe. I can't remember. Right offhand. But... Mephibosheth, he's lame in both legs because this lady was running. One of the servants was running to get him away so he didn't get killed. And she dropped him and he broke both his legs when he was a kid. But David took him in, treated him as his own son, fed him, had him sit at the table with David every day. So David, he did a great job of showing love. But he was sinful. He missed the mark. He was a transgressor. He was willfully disobedient. And he was full of iniquity, twisted out of shape. And that's the hardest one. That's the hardest aspect of human sinfulness to comprehend. Iniquity. We're born with a warped soul. Our minds, will, and emotions are violently twisted out of shape. Have you ever seen a car be crushed in a compactor? Anybody ever see that? That's a scary sight. You see the mangled metal just squashes it into a little, tiny little square. That's what we look like when we're born, on the inside. Violently twisted out of shape. And just like David was drawn to the rooftop by his own evil desires, we too are drawn to the evil desires of our own hearts. Now that we understand and recognize our depravity, There's got to be a solution. We can't stay this grim, can we? So how can we overcome it? We're not hopeless. The Bible does say that we've all sinned. We're all unworthy of a relationship with God. But thankfully, the Bible has an answer. The second step in soul surgery is for us to repent of our sin. Let's look at that second part of Psalm 51. Beginning in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop. I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. King David, when, he, when Nathan came up to him and said, you're the man, he was broken. He fell to his knees. He was truly broken. Have you ever done something to somebody and just felt so bad about it that you ached inside? I no, I have. Have you ever felt like I can't believe I did that. Have you ever felt the pain of that in your heart? And when did, he mourned over that sin when, it was, when he was confronted with it. He felt the emotional effects in his physical body. Look what it says in the latter part of verse 8. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He felt the pain physically in his body over his sin. He felt dirty. He was sad. He understood how he was twisted out of shape. His heart was dark and cold. He completely understood his depravity and realized that repentance was the only cure for his illness. Since we know that Jesus is the only answer for our sickness of sin, let's see what the New Testament has to say about surgery for our soul. Peter and Paul give us the prescription for eternal life and victory over the power of sin. When Peter's speaking to the crowd in Acts chapter 3, he says these words. He says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And then Paul says, And I alluded to this verse earlier. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus' death is the perfect sacrifice. His resurrection is our perfect hope. What the slaughtering of animals was incapable of accomplishing, Jesus did Himself. He paid for our sins with His own blood, And we must believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he came to die for our sins for the gift of eternal life. We must also repent and confess our sins before a holy God. It's not enough to just believe. You have to repent. John the Baptist came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. He didn't say, believe for the kingdom of heaven is here. Because when Jesus came on the scene, you couldn't do anything but believe. Or think he was a complete lunatic. So you either believed in him or you thought he was nuts. But that's not what John the Baptist said. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. You need to be cleansed of what you were born with to be right with God. To repent is to turn to God from a life of sin. The Bible says that we're made a new creation when we come to faith in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. When we choose to follow Jesus, we agree to follow him with everything that we are have and do. Our whole being. We will love him with our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. And then we'll love our neighbors as ourselves. By trusting in Jesus, we accept this surgery for our soul. By counting on his blood as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus metaphorically gives us a blood transfusion. His blood now is our blood. By repenting of our sin, we are inviting Jesus to perform surgery on our hearts and lives. That moves us to the third and final step for soul surgery. And we must respond in worship. Once David has confessed his sin, look at how he responds. Starting in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. When we come to a place of repentance, we cannot help it. We cannot do anything but respond in worship. King David responds with three acts of worship. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, in verse 13, David proclaims that I will teach transgressors your ways. One act of worship is to teach others the truth of God's word. Why do we desire to teach others God's ways? Because we've been forgiven, how could we possibly keep such a gift to ourselves? We can't help but tell other people about Jesus. Because we've been forgiven and freed from such a menace as, as sin, we long to see others saved. We want them to receive that gift. We rejoice in the restoration of others. One of my favorite blessings in being a Christian is to be able to share the truth of God's word with other people. I get fired up. You, you know, ask anybody that knows me well, I get fired up when someone I'm talking to receives a spiritual truth and takes it and applies it to their life. Nothing can bring me more joy at this point in my life than seeing other people come to Jesus and not only come to Jesus but follow Jesus. It's a rush. When I think of all that God has done for me, I can't help but share it. I just want to tell everybody. Then when that person takes hold of God's love and faithfulness, I rejoice for them and I praise God. King David was filled with joy and adoration when he repented and he received God's forgiveness and restoration. When his health was restored, he thought of others who were afflicted and wanted to see them restored. David understood that His chance of physical restoration was secondary to the restoration of his soul. When God offers forgiveness and restoration, we we should worship him by sharing that with others. Number two, David proclaims, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Pondering David's sin of murder, where it says blood guilt, he pleads for God's forgiveness and responds by singing praises to God. When you're singing, do you tend to picture the words of a song honoring God. My kids often tell me that they don't really listen to words of songs. They just like the beat. If that's true, why don't they just listen to the instrumental versions of these songs that they listen to? I don't get it. If you just like the beat, why do you listen to the smut that comes out of some of these people that we hear today on the radio? It's pretty sad. You know why? Because they're awa! They're pasha. They're kata. They're full of sin. That's why they tell me that. They're lying to me. (laughs) Willfully disobedient. They like the songs, period. They like the words that they say. They might love the beats, but they listen to the words. King David wanted to praise God by singing the words that proclaimed his glory. That's what we do when we come in here on a Sunday. We let the overflow of worship throughout the week come from our hearts and we ascribe glory to God with all the songs that we sing. That's why we do it together. How much, how much energy can you draw from singing praises to God? When you leave here, you should be fired up. You shouldn't really care about what's for lunch because it's going to taste so good because of the worship you let flow. I'm not even kidding, I'm serious. peanut butter and jelly sandwich could be the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich you ever had if you have it on Sunday after worshiping. Just saying. (laughs) I can't thank God enough for the love he's shown me. I just want to fall to my knees and praise. How do I do that? Do it through prayer. That's my avenue. God longs to connect with us. He doesn't desire goody-two-shoes types of people. How long have have people, Baptist churches, we're in a Baptist church, and I got to tell you, We lived a life of following the rules, follow, 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 follow all the rules, and we forgot to love Jesus in the process. Yes, I want to follow the rules, but I want to love Jesus in the process. I want to spend time with Him. Just following the rules doesn't get me to heaven. It doesn't change my life. It doesn't perform surgery. It's important because it shows a difference in my life. But my time with Jesus is what makes the difference. That's what overflows to other people. It's easy to follow the rules. Even sinners and the worst people in the Bible did that. God requires sacrifice from those he loves. And David says in this psalm, The sacrifices that God desires are not physical in nature. God wants us to be repentant of sin and joyous in his presence prayers of repentance and thanksgiving are the sacrifice that god requires he wants us to live for him and him alone to respond in prayer is an act of worship i opened up this morning when i I was welcoming everybody in i went to psalm 32 wait i'm gonna flip back there real quick i'm running out of time so i'm gonna make it quick i know you guys are you guys are staying with me are you still with me Everybody on Facebook with me? Say it in the chat. All right, here we go. He says in verse 1, Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. Listen to this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then, listen to this, then... I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you hear those three words? David understood the three aspects of human sinfulness. He knew that just saying, I'm sorry for killing Uriah or having sex with Bathsheba, he knew that wasn't enough. He knew that it was much deeper than that. He knew that he was willfully disobedient by not being out in battle. He understood that. But not only that, he knew that from birth he was twisted out of shape. And that he needed all those parts of sin to be forgiven. And he needed his soul to be restored. He explains to us that our bodies will decay more and more the longer we hold fast to sin. Our souls are just being twisted and crumbled and violently twisted out of shape the more that we give in to our temptations. When we remain silent, we're made weak. But when we pray and confess our sins, we are relieved and restored. God gives us new strength. The Apostle John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful And just, he will forgive us of our sins and justify us from all unrighteousness, purify us. And we cannot do this apart from from speaking to God. We have to spend time with God to do this. Our lips shall praise our God. David says to rejoice in the Lord and be glad. We must respond in worship by teaching others, singing songs of thanksgiving and praise, and simply just praising him in prayer. Let me leave you with a practical application for surgery for the soul. If we really want to make a difference, if we really want to live the life that God has called us to live, we have to live a life of ongoing repentance, which causes a response of worship. In turn, others will see your faith and seek Him who is the resurrection and the life. Bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you that you let your Holy Spirit convict us. That you show us the error of our ways. That you show us our transgressions, our iniquity. We know that we've missed the mark, God. We know we're not worthy. We know that our heart souls are twisted out of shape. And we know that we are willfully disobedient on More occasions than we really care to admit. But God, we're we're admitting to you now. We're confessing to you now. We trust your perfect sacrifice. We believe that Jesus died for our sins and that you raised him from the dead. We confess our sins to you today, God. Individually and corporately. God, we pray that you would restore each soul here today, Father. That where we fail in the past, you're turning it into something new. What we meant for evil, you're turning to good. Father, give us that new heart that we desire, a steadfast heart, one that will praise you at every turn. Father, as you cleanse us, make us light. Let people see the restoration of our souls as they see us walk with you. Father, I pray right now that you would just be glorified. I thank you that you love me enough.